When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm quite excited for this one, to be honest. Um, I'm talking to one of the two authors of the just-published book titled Dublin, Mapping the City. Uh, It's published by Berlin, came out in 2023, and I have with me to talk about it uh, Joe Brady, who, along with Paul Ferguson, has created this absolutely fascinating and beautiful book to use maps uh, to help us understand the growth and development of Dublin over quite a decent chunk of time. Um, so, Joe, thank you so much for being with me on the podcast. I'm absolutely delighted to be here, Miranda. It's great to get the opportunity to talk about the book. Wonderful. Well, before we do dive into the book, would you mind introducing yourself and perhaps also your co-author a little bit and explain kind of how you two came together to write the book? Well... I'm an academic, uh, I'm a geographer, so I've been working with maps all my working life and I've been studying the city of Dublin for an awful long time. And part of the the work that I've been doing has always involved trying to make maps more accessible to people and to show how what a wonderful resource they are. So we've been doing this for quite some time. Uh, Paul, my co-author, is the map librarian in Trinity. Uh, he's, he's also a long-term friend of mine. We were both in college together. So we've been going down that road for quite some time. So we were really thrilled when Berlin asked us to tackle the latest in their series of, of books on the, 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 the on cities, um, and because it gave us the opportunity to talk about something that we were really interested in. That sounds like a great combination of things coming together. Yes, um, it was. It, it, it was one of those things where, you know, we've had these maps, we've been collecting these maps for many years, we've been using them in different contexts, but this was, this was the first opportunity to allow them to shine by themselves. Well, shine they do. Um, I cannot emphasize enough how gorgeous the book is, in addition to being fascinating, Um, though this is an audio medium, so I suppose listeners will have to know. Indeed, it's one of the challenges of talking about maps. But yes, we're very, very pleased with the work that Berlin did. They, they, They did a lovely job for us, and I think they have produced what is really a fabulous publication. Well, let's start talking about it. Um... Can you take us through why the first map in the book is from 1610? Well, it's the first surviving map of the city. There, There is probably an earlier one, but it really goes back to the story of cartography and the, the, um, the development of the industry in the late 1500s into the early 1600s, where you see this upsurge in... Uh, 
in cartography and in the mapping of cities uh, on continental Europe. And it, it eventually spreads uh, into Dublin, uh, it eventually spreads into Ireland. There is an earlier map, or at least there was an earlier map, because Speed tells us that he's stolen it. And uh, so he, he, he didn't go to the trouble of uh, coming to Dublin to produce his map of the city. Uh, but that earlier map, we reckon, is probably from about 1585, but nobody's seen it except Speed. Hmm. That actually brings me to kind of a bigger question I had reading through the book. Obviously, we think of in a lot of ways maps as being kind of something that are always there, have always been there. But obviously, in that answer, um, we've lost some maps. So to what extent were any of these maps designed to last forever? And did that ever change? I suppose they people had very different conceptions as to how long something would last. The, the, the speed map in particular is probably the best known map of the city, but it's best known only because there's nothing else. It's quite a small map. It's only the inset of his larger uh, double folio page on Leinster. But because there's nothing between it and the, the next map, which arrives almost a century later, it's kind of overused. Um, so Speed is probably getting a longer use than he would have thought. Uh, you know, he produces his theatre, The Empire of Great Britain, in 1611. Uh, but that map is still being produced in 1676. It's been plagiarised left, right and centre by all of the publishers across Europe. Uh, it's being, it appears in all kinds of publications into the 18th century. And then academics have been drawing out every last detail of that map, not only to try and explain what the city looked like in 1610, but you know, trying to project it backwards uh, to tell us something about the evolution of the city in the, the previous 800 years. Because Dublin is an old city. Uh, the the the, uh, the origins of the city are lost in the mists of time, but it's certainly more than a thousand years old. So you've got, you have got certainly 500, 600, 700, maybe even 800 years of history before we get the first map. So you can see the kind of pressure that poor old Speed is under uh, in terms of he has to reveal everything about the, uh, the the evolution of the city, and then he's he's going to tell us something about how the city is going to develop. So it's an important map, but it is, in all honesty, an overused map. Hmm. That makes sense if it's kind of the one that's there for such a long time. And the one that's, as I say, is plagiarised by all of the major publishers. So, you know, if you go down to the great work of, of Brown and uh, Hogenberg, uh, their, 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 their multi-volume series on the, the cities of the world. What have they got in it? They've got a copy of Speed. Uh, when you look at Hermanides a little bit later on, what's he using? He's using Speed. Um, so Speed gets longevity. Which is fascinating um, because it's not necessarily the material so much as the idea. Um, were other maps throughout the book designed for longevity in any sort of way? Probably not, in that the most of them were until we get to until we get to the nineteenth century. Most of these are commercial propositions that you know people are trying to make some money from them. So I suppose they're happy that they last as long as they do, 
but there's always the, the next map coming along. So they weren't particularly designed for longevity. Uh, they happen to have survived largely because they're well produced and because the quality of the paper that uh, on which they're printed uh, is, is, is also good. Um, but the... I just said, no, the, you know, that's, we've got this done, is what they say, now we're going to try and sell it, and uh, we'll see how it goes, and you know, hopefully we make a few, um, a few bob out of it. Fair enough. Um, and again, it helps explain why the first map is from 1610. Yeah, they now there there are there are those who claim that you can go back to Ptolemy in the first century AD, and you can go back to his 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 atlas um, of Ireland, which we are told shows a, a, an image of the city, or at least it points to the location of the city. But there's no real evidence that there is anything there at all. So yeah, it's it's the first map. It's it's a nice map. Uh, it's the one that's on everybody's wall. Fair enough. Um, though perhaps after reading this, people will want more different maps. Well, I hope so. In fact, we were, you know, we, we were looking at the, the the map that we would put on the the front cover of the book, and you know, we were thinking about you know, would we use speed? And we were saying no, let's go, let's go for something else. Yeah, you know, because we, you know, we wanted it to wanted it to have a different look. So, which one did you choose, and why that one? We, well. We kind of have an embarrassment of riches when we come to the middle of the 19th century. And the one of the most the most uh, decorative maps, but not necessarily one of the, the most innovative maps, is the one which is produced by Talus for his illustrated atlas uh, in the middle of the century. So the map itself is incredibly decorative. It's, it's, uh, it's got lovely color. It's got lovely vignettes on the side. Uh, it shows the city off very well, but it it's not as informative, or at least it doesn't add as much as you would hope compared to the earlier map from about eighteen thirty six. So we said, okay, we can't put both of them in because you know we're trying to get a range of these maps, we're trying to tell the story. So what we'll do is we'll use the more decorative one, we'll use the talus one for the cover. I think it's come out well. I think it it's a uh, um, and and it fits in the series because. This is a book in a series of books, and there is a series look. And I think, I, I think, I think it turned out to be a good choice. I think it looks well. It does, though. Also, reading the book, the idea of an embarrassment of riches um, becomes quite clear. Um, I wonder if I can ask you about something that I found really interesting reading and looking, especially at the different maps going through. That in a lot of ways, um, some of the maps and some of the buildings in Dublin looked quite similar to European cities. How and why were those links created? Well, it's one of those things, even though Ireland is a, a small island on the edge of the continent, the connections with mainland Europe were quite strong. So if you take it that the development of the modern city begins after 1662, this is the the impact of the restoration of the monarchy uh, in Britain, uh, the the folks return, the, the viceroy returns, and they've spent their time during the Cromwellian period in France, and they have developed these connections. And so when they come to start developing the city, the place the places that they look 
are to the, the mainland. And these guys are all well educated. These guys have all read all of the major textbooks. They know about Vitruvius. Uh, they know about Palladio. They, 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 they have this sense as to what a city should look like. They've let they, they, they've uh, read Leibniz. They have the notion of you know the capital city showing off to the world. So their analogs and their models uh, are very much part and parcel of what you see elsewhere, and this continues uh, into the uh, the eighteenth century because one of the big effects in the eighteenth century is that in order to solve a a, a fairly minor problem of access. The, the corporation, the city's corporation, established a commission, uh, an independent commission, a commission for convenient for, for, for the production of wide and convenient passageways. And these guys became an effective planning body for the city for the next hundred years. Now, we know what these guys had in their libraries because we have their catalogues when you know they died and these things were sold. And we also have the orders which they they made uh, for books. And what they're doing is they are looking at the best models that they can see uh, across Europe. And they're saying, yeah, this is what we want. Uh, they're, they're influenced by the same trends. They they understand modern urban planning. They, they have, they're imbued with all of these Renaissance ideas of, of symmetry and order. And this is what they bring to Dublin. So... Dublin, yes, Dublin fits very much into the mould of a European city, especially after 1660. And um, you get the same kind of architecture, you get the same kind of uh, approach to things. And because they are deliberately trying to do this, uh, they're, they're saying, you know, we are a European city and this is how European cities look. And that's picked up when you read the guidebooks to the city say, coming into the end of the, the city's glory days, so the, you know, the final years of the, the 1790s, uh, you get guidebooks appearing and they're coming and they're saying that but the city is a jewel of European planning. Uh, they come and they see the, the, this bright new city with all of these you know, new buildings, these new wide streets and so on, and it looks very, very good. And as I say, it's the, it's the height of the uh, of the city's glory, uh, the nineteenth century is not as kind. That is an unfortunate um, end, but a very cool explanation for something that is still incredibly visible today in Dublin: the European um, sort of influence and identification. Something else I'd love to ask you about: um, I wasn't expecting really to see so many and read about so many examples of quite specialised maps, quite technical maps that have been created for Dublin over the years. Could you tell us a bit about some of these? It comes back to the question of what a map is. And if you take it, I mean, we've all grown used in recent years to having maps on our phones. And, you know, we have our Google map and our Google map is, tends to be used as how do we get from A to B. But a map is also a very, very important way of summarizing a great deal of information. You can, you can show, you can, you can hold uh, a huge amount of information in a map. And not only is the information displayed, the information is shown in a geospatial way. So you're able to show things in their spatial context. So if you want to communicate something, 
then a map is a very, very good way of doing it. And that has been seized upon throughout the years uh, as a way of summarizing information. Uh, and throughout the book, we've got a, a number of examples of these of these very specialized ones. I suppose the one that I would um, hone in on first is probably what was produced for the Civic Survey in 1925. There you have, this is the first detailed study of the city. Uh, it's fitting very much into the, 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 the uh, Geddes idea of that if you're going to produce a town plan, you need to have your evidence first. And they go out and they gather huge amounts of information about the city, some of it, you know, wild and wonderful, coming down to things like, you know, location of public toilets, where are the sewers, uh, what's the death rate over here, where are the traffic congestion, and how better to show this than by producing a map? Because you're able to put the information there, and at the same time, you're able to show where it's happening. So there's a, there's a fascinating map which shows the 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 impact of the 18th century planning into the 19th century and then as is being experienced in the 20th century it's showing traffic congestion in the city and it's showing how the earlier conceptions of uh, uh, wide and um, straight streets are great but they're also showing how some of the aesthetic is causing problems so they they they, they give you the map of the city they show the main routes on the city they show the pinch points and they give you an indication in terms of the size of the graphics as to where the pinch points are, how big are they, what kind of problems are they causing and what it is, it's an agenda for the future development of the city. Now, you could produce a report and you, know, you can outline all of these things in a report, but you can't really communicate it as well uh, unless you have a map. And that's the kind of thing that people have done uh, over the years. Uh, there's another specialized map, which we'll, we'll probably talk about later, which is uh, a one which is showing the distribution of typhoid fever in the city. Now, you might reckon this is not a particularly entertaining map to have, but in fact, it's a fascinating insight into the state of medical knowledge at the time. So what we have uh, in the book is that we have a series of maps which show the development of the city, there are those which show the planning of the city, and then there are those which try and communicate an awful lot more information about the city. So it's because it's because the pair of us think that maps are just great that they they they, uh, they in the, you know the days before the internet and in the days where you're trying to really summarize stuff, uh, it's very very hard to beat a map. Indeed, um, again, some fascinating examples there. Thank you for giving us a brief summary. I'd love to pick up on something you mentioned, um, traffic congestion. Just how long has this been a problem for Dublin? And what have some of the resolution attempts been? Well, it's been a problem since the city developed. The, <clears throat> the medieval city was small and in line with most European medieval cities, it had its narrow, fairly crooked lanes uh, and fairly indirect um, routeways. This became a problem uh, by the 16th century. In fact, if you if you go back to our friend Speed, uh, you can get some sense of the, the 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 rather the rather unorganized or disorganized nature of the um, the street system. 
So we come to 1756, and there is a problem in the, the medieval city. The city has expanded beyond it, but medieval city is important for ceremonial purposes. And you would have the the occasional ceremonial visit of the Viceroy um, from his summer house in the Phoenix Park into Dublin Castle. And he has to, he, he, he goes in state. So he's, he's got his, uh, he has his carriage and he's got his escort and they go down the brand new quays and they turn across the, the river and they find themselves into this warren of lanes. And of course, he gets delayed. And the trouble is, the locals don't always like him. So he can end up getting cabbages thrown into his carriage and maybe other things which are not quite as uh, as useful. The other problem is that the, the streets are narrow and shopkeepers have taken to using the streets as an extension of their shops. So even by the 18th century, there's a, tra there's a traffic congestion problem. And this brings me back to my mention of the, the wide street commissioners, as they're called. This was a rather bright idea uh, in that what, they, what the corporation did was it established this body and gave it very, very significant powers to redesign streets. And so these guys, over the next hundred years, straightened out streets, they widened the streets, they demolished old buildings, they, they built the streets uh, following these um, European lines of uh, perspective, symmetry, uh, following the best, best Renaissance principles, and they created the modern city in order to solve the traffic problems. The trouble is, they also produced a very, very narrow focus because they were they were interested in getting how this thing looked. So streets were wide and they were, you know, they were very attractive and they turned across the river and all the traffic flowed along this route and all the traffic found itself stuck at the river. And it still is there today. It's still a problem today. Uh, our city council is still grappling with how do you deal with traffic congestion in the city centre? So quite a number of the maps show it in different ways at different times. And it's simply a reflection of the way that the, the city evolved. It evolved in parallel to the river uh, with a limited number of crossings. And to add to the problems, uh, Dublin is a port city. It's always been a port city. The port developed on both sides of the river. So there was always the question of getting from one side of the port to the other involved traffic coming up to the centre, going across one of the bridges and then going back down. And these problems have proved intractable. It, they, they go through all of the plans that you'll find in the city, as I say, from the 18th century. So it's, a, it's, it's always been a problem. It continues to be a problem. And this is very clearly documented in all of those maps. Thank you for giving us that background to, as you said, something that's still very much impacting people's lives today. Yes. The, um, our city council is currently taking the view that the only way to solve the traffic problem is by eliminating it entirely. So the uh, the Wide Street Commissioners, in fact, may well get their, 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 their view or their, their wish of uh, producing this very, very elegant city centre without any traffic in it, uh, hmm. if we live long enough, perhaps. 
<laughs> we shall see. Um, one aspect about the maps is, um, as you said, right, especially before the internet, they could tell you a lot more than just sort of where something is. There's a lot we can learn about, as you said, public housing, about kind of ideas of identity from looking at the maps. One of them that I found fascinating is that we can learn about people's daily lives, kind of what did they do, when did they do it, by looking at things, for example, like maps of the tram system. Can you take us through this? Yeah. The what you're having here what we have here are a series of maps which allows to get a sense of how people engaged with the city and the the kind of facilities that were available and how these things operated. Um we also get a sense, of course, of the development of the city. Now the tram system is very interesting because it shows you that unusually for a city, the the tram system was ahead of urban development. So the Dublin gets a, a much more extensive tram system by the end of the 19th century than you would expect in terms of its urban development. And the reason for that is that there are there are tourist attractions which are on the outskirts of the city and the tram companies feel that uh, these are important to connect with. But also because of the way Dublin developed in the 19th century and it developed this peculiar structure where you have a relatively small city which is governed by a, a, a corporation which becomes a bit more democratic as the 19th century goes on. But directly outside it are these a series of independent townships. These are developer-led towns, independent of the, the main city. And there's a series of these along the coast. The coast is very attractive. And they lead out to another port, um, Dunleary, which is an asylum port because one of the problems, and I'll come back to it in a minute, one of the problems of of uh, of, uh, of Dublin is that even though it's always been a port city, it has a very, very difficult entrance. So the tram system evolves to be quite extensive and to be quite uh, uh, useful because when you look at what you can do, you can travel by tram nearly everywhere in the city and you can get parcels developed as well too because the whole business of retailing is designed to satisfy a significant middle-class population. Um, so you can go into, into the city centre, go into some of the fine shops there, uh, commission your goods, and then have them delivered by tram. Uh, there's a network of, of, uh, of boys, uh, delivery boys, uh, who will carry the goods from the shop to the tram. They get put on the tram. There's a, a network at the other end to collect the goods and get them delivered. So the maps capture this kind of thing. The maps, you know, the, the, you get a sense of the uh, of how the city is used. Uh, the, there's another set uh, where we, we 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 make use of a directory which was produced in 1850, which gives us a view of what the shopping experience looked like. It gives us a view of what the shops looked like. I mean, it's very very hard to get that image elsewhere as to uh, if you walk down the street. Uh, what would the street look like in three dimensions? 
Um, and we've got some maps which try and give us that sense of a, a, a three-dimensional city. So the we also have maps which um, bring us into the 20th century. Uh, these are fire insurance maps which are produced by the Charles Goad Company. And they... They tell us what the street looked like. They tell us what you can buy on the street. And they also give us this sense of what the internal structure of these buildings is about. So we're trying to add to the the, the more static information that you get in the directories of the time, the information that you will get from the newspapers of the time, and to try and give an impression of what would it have been like to walk along one of these streets. Which these maps together very much um, give that impression. Similarly, uh, picking up something you briefly mentioned before, can you tell us more about what we can learn about healthcare and sort of cleanliness and what people's lives were like in that sense by looking at maps? Yes, well, one of the, one of the interesting things about the development of the city of Dublin is that you can draw a huge contrast between the 18th century and the 19th century. The 18th century is one of growth, expansion, the development of a modern, bright city. Uh, there is wealth in the city, and that wealth is, is spent. Uh, it's spent on these fine buildings, it's spent on these fine houses, on the, the, the town palaces of the rich, and it's a, it's a, it's a city with significant... Um, obvious consumption. Um, there is there's loads of money being spent on silverware, on books, on hairdressers, all that kind of thing. There is, of course, a much larger poor population. Uh, and that poor population is on the streets, but largely invisible uh, in terms of the record in the 18th century. 19th century, this changes and it changes as a, a result of a, a number of different factors. Uh, the first is the, the Act of Union, which unifies the two kingdoms. So um, Ireland, a, a separate kingdom uh, to Britain, uh, but uh, 1801, you get the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. That removes Dublin's capital city status, the very wealthy leave. They've no reason to be in the city anymore. There's no parliament. There's no business around this. You also get the developing European idea of suburbanization having an effect in Dublin, even though Dublin never industrializes. Nonetheless, the middle class adopt the idea that living in the suburbs is a better idea, that the, the air is healthier and so on. And they move. Uh, and from about the 1830s onwards, there's a significant growth of of um, suburbs in the city. And as I said to you a few minutes ago, these are independent. These are independent of the city authorities. They're, they uh, they have their own governance. They have their own taxation uh, raising capacity. And more importantly, they pay nothing to the main city. Then you get the perfect storm developing in that the city becomes the destination for a, an increasingly poor population. The countryside is poor and people are migrating. 
Many of them are hoping to migrate to the growing industrial cities uh, in the UK of Birmingham, uh, Manchester, Sheffield, and so on, where they hear where they hear that there are jobs, but many of them simply don't have the money to go beyond Dublin, and so they arrive into a city which doesn't need them. Um, there is no demand for unskilled labour. They arrive into a city where the middle classes are deserting it and not contributing to the, uh, the the upkeep of the city. And as a result of that, the city becomes poor. The city becomes desperately poor in the 19th century and it becomes characterised by huge problems of, um, huge public health problems, I suppose, would be the first focus. And a huge demand for improved working class housing. And it takes most of the 19th century before any kind of response is developed. And in fact, it takes almost all of the 20th century before the problem is solved. So you have this strange circumstance where you have the the middle classes living outside of the boundaries of the city. They come into the city to go to work. They come into the city to shop. They come into the city for entertainment but they go home in the evening and they don't contribute to this problem of health uh, and public health. So what you get there, therefore, is a a huge concern because the Victorians were great at doing surveys. The Victorians were great at doing research into uh, the problems of the city and not so great at actually sorting them out. So what we have in the book is that we look at a a, a couple of examples of this. And the example that I I favour most is this unique map from 1893, which shows the distribution of uh, typhoid uh, fever in the city in that year. Now, it's interesting as a map in itself, because it's a very detailed map. It's a dot map, quite rare. Uh, the sanitary inspectors have gone out and they have mapped each instance of the of fever. <clears throat> but it's also an interesting map because it shows the evolution of medical knowledge at the time. The chief medical officer for health is a guy called Charles Cameron, Sir Charles Cameron, as he is by the time we get to the map. And he's old school. He's been, he was first appointed in the 1860s as the as the uh, deputy uh, he becomes the chief medical officer for health in the 1870s and he continues in that role until he dies in 1921 when you read his work you can see that he starts off with the idea of miasma he's very much into that so disease is caused by the transmission through the air of what he calls animal poisons. These animal poisons are invisible, uh, but they are created in dirt and filth and decay and so on, and they are transmitted. They rise up into the air and are transmitted, and people are infected, and people get various diseases from which they die. By the time we get to 1893, the idea of bacteria has been accepted. 
And Cameron says he, yes, he understands now that perhaps this is caused by a bacillus, that it is caused by a bacterium. He's not, in, he's not entirely convinced, but, but yes, he reckons that the, the most modern literature would say it is. But he still is talking about the thing getting into the air. And this map shows his theory about why it is there is a particular distribution to the, the instance of fever in the city in 1891 and in 1893. He says, okay, Dublin has got a new water supply and it's got a new healthy water supply, but it has centuries of latrines and middens and the, the, the ground uh, the ground is heavily polluted and it's full of all of these nasty bacteria. But he says, how do they get out of the ground and into the air? Because he's still believing that these, these rise up and are carried on the wind. And he produces the map. The map shows us a distribution of clay and gravel. Uh, Dublin, as we know, is a coastal city. It's got an extensive bay. And these, the soils which are closer here, are gravels. Further in, it's got a fairly heavy limestone soil. Uh, Cameron reckons that the bacterium can rise through the gravels with greater ease. There are more air pockets. The clays are denser. So unless the clays dry out in a hot summer, the bacterium can't get up as easily. So this is what the map is showing. So it's there not only because it's an interesting map in its own right, and because it shows something which you don't otherwise see, you get this distribution, but it also gives you an insight into uh, the state of medical knowledge at one particular point. Uh, and that's why it's there. Absolutely fascinating and such a great example of the many things that can be learnt from maps. Um, you mentioned, obviously, the, the problem and the fact that it took such a long time to solve, especially for housing. Um, I'd love to move through to talk about that 20th century sort of big picture goal. Um, please go ahead. As I say, the 19th century wasn't pleasant. Uh, the 19th century saw significant population growth within the city. And again, I, I do emphasize the fact that the city has its suburbs but the suburbs are independent. So it's it's not that there are no wealthy middle-class people, upper-class people. There are. They're a small group, but they've got, a, they've got significant economic resources. But they're outside. They're outside the boundaries of the city itself. The city itself is poor, and it has a significantly large poor population which grows throughout the 19th century. So the 20th century is all about trying to sort this out and how do you go about doing it? And it's a story which has parallels in the, the remainder of the United Kingdom as it was. But Dublin is regarded as probably the worst city in all of the United Kingdom. It probably has the, the, uh, the most serious problems of poor housing and poor housing produces poor public health. Uh, the, the, it starts off being a public health question. It, it gradually segues into being one of better housing because that's what people should have. 
but it starts off as being, this is an approach to public health. So the 20th century is all about the developing relationships between public bodies and also a developing sense of the responsibility that the local authority has in trying to improve things. And it's, it's a journey. Uh, it's they, you find them casting around in the, the 1880s, wondering how they're going to do it and wondering, can they do it without spending money? Uh, and there's a debate as to whether or not you build the housing that you think people should have as distinct from building the housing that they can afford. And gradually there's a, a realization that you're going to have to subsidize. You're going to have to raise taxes and you're going to have to subsidize people uh, in terms of, of quality. Now, it goes back to an earlier question that you put to me, Miranda, about the relationship between Dublin and the rest uh, of Europe. Uh, Dublin is very much plugged into the evolving idea of town planning. Uh, Dublin knows all about Ebenezer Howard. Uh, people have read uh, his book uh, after 1898. They know about the notion of garden cities. They know about the notion of rational planning. Uh, people like um, Unwin and Geddes are visitors to Dublin. And there's big interest in approaching this question about housing in a very rational way and a modern way and one which uh, follows best practice. And so what we have in the, 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 the book is a, a number of examples of these early attempts at public housing. And in particular, we're, there, there is, a, I think, a lovely map uh, which was drawn by the guy who went on to, to become the, the chief architect for the city, uh, showing the, the first of these model suburban estates um, you probably can call them um, garden suburbs, uh, not necessary to do so, but they they have all of this notion of that you, you build uh, at low density, you build a variety of houses. So the, the plan for Marino, for example, had the original plan had 10 different housing types. You integrate a great deal of open space you produce a geometric design because they're very keen on geometric designs, but they're not. It's not rigid. the The street lines vary, uh, even though when you look at it from the air, it gives this impression of very, very rigid geometry. So there is this attempt to try and produce a good environment, uh, and at the same time, there's this concern about whether or not we can afford it. So what you get as the 20th century moves on is that you get a, a rowing back of design in favor of an increase in quantity. And into the 1930s, they're talking about building more and more and more. And the problem continues. The problem continues right into the 1970s, into the 1980s. And in fact, you wouldn't say that the problem has gone away at all today. Uh, there is a different kind of problem in that there is a huge shortage of housing, largely because of economic growth and the fact that the city is growing rapidly and there's a huge demand. But that early map of Marino shows just how much um, Ireland was part and parcel of this developing notion of town planning, because 
the the standards uh, are the same. Even though the Tudor Walters report, which set the tone for uh, public housing in the United Kingdom for the interwar years, even though the Tudor Walters report did not uh, apply to Ireland, did not apply to Dublin, it appears late in 1918. You find in the correspondence of Dublin Corporation that they have a copy of it immediately. And they're saying, yeah, this is this is the standard. This is what we're going to do. So we try and capture that story uh, in in particularly this, the, the map on Marino, but some of the other things that that we uh, are deal with as well. And it's it's a good story and it's a bad story. Uh, it's a good story in terms of the the progress that is made in terms of improving the the uh, the the conditions that were prevalent in the city in the 19th century, but these conditions are still prevalent in the 1980s. You know, it takes the century before the uh, the problems are really got to the point that you can really say that the slums are gone. I mean, the last slums would not have been demolished until about 1984. So it's, you know, it was a, it was a tough slog. It is an, an absolutely fascinating one. I think, especially because it took such a long time, the seeing it change through time in the maps is really interesting. Um, thinking as well about kind of other changes happening during this later 20th century part, why was the Dublin Postal Districts map of 1961 so impactful? Yeah, it's, it's, I, 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 think, I think it's a lovely story. Um, it tells you the, I suppose it tells you the property matters there was a time in Dublin, going back into the 1920s, when there was a real concern that the country could become communist. Uh, now, it was never going to happen, but it was there. You find it in official discourses, and they're very worried that such is the problem of the working classes, that they could rise up and um, become communists. And the way you sort that out is by is by promoting home ownership, because property owners don't become communists. And so public policy from the late 1920s on is all about social housing for those who can't afford to provide their own housing, but also encouraging ownership amongst those who can. Now, one thing that happens is once you get your your, your property, you're going to defend it because you do not want anything that is going to damage the value of your property. Now, you think, therefore, that in introduction of a postal district would be just an anodyne thing um, and just something that would make the, it easier to get letters from uh, A to B, but no. There are no postal districts in Dublin until this, this map is produced. Uh, th there is an attempt in the 1920s to introduce postal districts on the same basis as London. So, you know, NW2 or SW1 and so on, but it never catches on. And it doesn't catch on because it's not necessary, uh, because the city is still relatively spatially small and therefore the postal system is able to cope. But by the um, 1960s, the city has grown and the postal authorities say, look, if we're going to be efficient in terms of delivering letters, we are going to have to produce some kind of rational thing. So they they produce what they think is a very simple system. We are, we'll just draw lines um, 
on the map of Dublin and it will reflect the routes taken by our postmen and we'll give each of these a number and we'll ask people to use that number uh, on their letters. So Dublin 1, Dublin 2, very simple. Dublin 3, Dublin 4, um, just a set of numbers. And the numbers are conveniently divided from their point of view in that there are odd numbers on the um, north side of the city and there are even numbers on the south side of the city. Now, that immediately sets up a social contrast because the northern part of the city is not the favoured part of the city. So the north side of Dublin does not have the same social standing as the south side of Dublin. So first thing is, you're the wrong number. So you're in Dublin 3, mm, that's north side. So, you know, that's not as good as being in Dublin 6. Then people start looking at the boundaries of it and they start seeing where are the desirable areas. And it becomes clear that one area in particular, Dublin 4, has got the what are seen as the best residential areas and Dublin 4 suddenly becomes something that you want to have on your letter. So much so that people start saying that they're living adjacent to Dublin 4, if not quite there. Now, if you can't live in Dublin 4, you need to live in Dublin 6. Dublin 6 is next door, not quite as good as Dublin 4, but nonetheless. And despite the fact that these areas are not homogenous, despite the fact that these areas have not been drawn with any kind of social engineering in mind, Nonetheless, they're taking on this value. They're taking on this social value. It, it, it kind of, it, it works for a while. It works. Um, the, um, unfortunately, academics start using these, uh, these postal districts as if they did have social value. I mean, the geographers were pretty clear that they didn't and that they were merely, you know, something that was there for postal efficiency. But the um, others, and particularly our, our sociologist friends, were, were seeing this as a useful way of describing the social class of the city. And of course, people came to believe it as well. It suited them. Now, Dublin 6 has got too big. Dublin 6 has got too big, and the postal authorities want to divide it. Well, all hell breaks loose, because people who are living in Dublin 6, which, as I say, is not quite as good as Dublin 4, will now be living in Dublin 14, wherever that is. And an unholy row develops. Court cases are taken. There are protests. There are injunctions. People saying that they're not going to have their property devalued overnight. Um, and it, it, it reaches such a fever pitch that the only solution which is found is to create a thing called Dublin 6W. So it's still Dublin 6, folks. It's just the western bit of Dublin 6. And that kind of calms things down. And it's all to do with property values. It's all to do with maintaining property values and the belief that the postal district tells you something about the property. And over the years, there are rows, there are court cases, 
uh, about a house being sold as being in one postal district and then when the people move into the house they find it's in another postal district which they don't like and they goes to court and saying you know you misrepresented it and so on. Now the postal district system is very simple as I say it's just a series of numbers the numbers gradually increase till we get to about 23 or so Dublin 23. It's decided some years ago that it's necessary to introduce a much more complicated postal um, system. Uh, something like the UK system, but not not quite. Uh, it's it's an individualised one. Every house has its uh, its own number. Uh, mine is D09E7P1. But in order to avoid in order to avoid the row in Dublin, the first part of your new code contains the old postal district. So if you lived in Dublin 4, your new postal district is D04, so that everybody knows you're still in Dublin 4. So I love this little map because it tells you so much uh, about the operation of the property market. It tells you so much about how people feel about their property and the lengths to which they're prepared to go to preserve what they see as their property rights. And it tells you about how people react to maps. Oh, it tells you that maps suddenly become terribly, terribly important. They, they, when, when the Ordnance Survey produced its detailed uh, map of the postal district, because the, the earlier one was just kind of lines on a, on a small map, people poured over that with great interest. And there, as I say, there was all kinds of representations made because the, you know, the line goes down a street and on one side you're in Dublin 9, on the other side you're in Dublin 11. Is Dublin 9 the same as Dublin 11? No, it's not. Are you buying or are you selling? Right. No, absolutely fascinating. Um, that's why obviously I wanted to ask you about it because it is such a good story. Um, thinking about the book as a whole, do you have a map that is your favourite or a story that you particularly want to tell we've not covered yet? Well, there are favourite maps, but they, one of the things we, we try and do in the book is to have a thread or a series of threads running through it which looks at various aspects over the years. Uh, and one which I think I like is the whole question of the, the port of Dublin. Dublin has a wide bay, uh, greatly praised by Victorian travel writers who compared it to the Bay of Naples and so on. But it's a very poor uh, port in terms of getting into it. In fact, you, you would not give the Vikings uh, high marks in terms of their choice of locations. You'd be sort of giving them a D plus uh, because the port is shallow and there are two huge sandbanks to the north and to the south. And then to make matters worse, there is a rather large sandbank bank right across the port. Um, so much so that the one of the great engineering works of the 18th century was the creation, the building of a great sea wall uh, which stretches out uh, from its uh, from its beginnings, four kilometres 
um, into the bay, uh, which is matched by a somewhat smaller but equally impressive seawall on the other side. And this produces a tidal scour, uh, which removes the sandbank uh, at, at ebbing tide. So the city has always been wondering about its its port and about its bay. So the maps tell the story of the wall. The maps tell the story of the the development of the sea walls, of the various solutions that were put in place. Uh, and that sea wall, particularly the south one, what's called the South Bull, uh, remains today uh, intact. Uh, it's a marvel of engineering and it's a very enjoyable walk for Dubliners uh, getting you out into the air. But the shallowness of the bay caused people, when they started looking at the city in terms of town planning, they said, well, why don't we fill it in? Why don't we use the fact that there is this wall going out into the, into the, into the sea, which gives us a baseline, and then draw a line from that down along the coast until it meets the, the land and then fill it in. And what can we do? Well, we can make a new port, we can put industry there, we can put housing there. And in the book, we've got a series of maps which look at, looks at the various attempts or the various suggestions for this during the um, 20th century. Uh, they start off with Patrick Crumb uh, Abercrombie's um, look in the first town plan of the city, uh, first mooted in 1914, where he goes for a very extensive reclamation. It's carried through into 1941, but the, the new putative town plan for the city, where again the story is about reclamation and smaller reclamation. It moves us through to 1972, where the Port Authority is looking for how it's going to develop into the years to come. There's a proposal, incredible to think about it now, a proposal to build an oil refinery in the in the bay, but also to fill in a great deal of the of the port. Uh, now, the, the the it's never got very far, uh, largely in latter times because the back to this question of property, uh, the residents' associations uh, along that stretch of the. Um, of the, the, the coast are, are, are middle class, lots of money, very well organised, and it ain't going to happen if they have anything to do with it. But it's back on the agenda again. It's just back on the agenda again because the whole trend now is on limiting the footprint of the city. Now, the city has grown. The city has got very, very extensive suburbs. They, they stretch way out um, so that you know, people have commuting times uh, of an hour and a half or so from some of the some of the settlements, and so the story is no, no. We need to we need to narrow the footprint. We need to bring people back uh, into the central areas, and they're saying there yeah, the port is pretty good, uh, and it would solve a developing problem as well too, because um, rising sea levels are going to flood quite a number of these very very fancy areas, and so there's going to have to be extensive flood defences built over the next. 10, 15, 20 years. And so once again, the port is up for grabs. So that would be one of the threads running through the book that um, I like most, I suppose. And probably the, the, the most novel map is the one which comes towards the end, 
which is the series of maps which was produced in this in the Soviet Union, which um, shows Dublin as a target for a nuclear attack. Um, we always reckoned that we were we were on the outskirts of this, but it was interesting when the Soviet Union collapsed. Uh, there was a, a great outpouring of public documents and. The, the, there was a shop in London called Collets, which specialised in um, Eastern European publications, and they got their hands uh, on a supply of these maps, which had been been produced by the, the General Army staff uh, of Dublin and indeed a great number of cities uh, across Europe and and uh, in the UK as well. And they're very very detailed maps of the city. They've um, clearly been stolen from the Ordnance Survey, but not entirely. They, 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 they've been updated. And they mark the targets. They're, they're colour-coded. So, you know, you've got one, uh, you've got one colour for the um, oil refinery or the oil installations. You've another colour for um, army installations, military installations. You've got another colour for civil institutions and so on. What's comforting about it is that although the map itself is up to date, uh, the information clearly isn't. And so they would be targeting something which hadn't been used since 1920. Um, they would be sort of missing uh, the, the Parliament House, but they would be hitting a bank. Um, and from my own perspective, they didn't get the fact that my university had moved out of the suburbs um, in the 1960s and was no longer in its city centre location. So that would be kind of my favourite quirky map. That is quite a good quirky map. I'm glad we were able to include that. Um, thinking now kind of about you, I suppose, more than the book, is my final question. Um, may I ask what you and perhaps your colleague Paul might be working on next now that this book is out in the world? Well, you don't know because the... I've been working, I've been working on a series of books on the development of the city over the past number of years, and I was working on the uh, the latest volume in this when the invitation from Berlin came because the it came out of the blue. It was very very welcome, but it wasn't something that we were planning. There is another there's another mapping project that we might look at, which is we might actually move to look at the island and to see how the island has been mapped and to see if we can do something similar uh, for the island of Ireland. But not nothing definite yet. I, I really need to go back to the, the project that, that, I, that I paused. Um, Paul, equally so, um, he's got his, his, his own projects to do. So we haven't, we haven't got a particular direction yet, but whatever it is, it's going to involve maps. Fair enough. Well, um, while you work on your paused projects of course listeners can read and enjoy the visual elements of the book we've been discussing titled dublin mapping the city from berlin joe thank you so much for being with us on the podcast miranda it's been an absolute pleasure thank you very much for the opportunity to talk about the book and to talk about maps